Personal tragedy and political upheaval have marked the last few years for Maryland U.S. Representative Jamie Raskin. On December 31st, 2020, the unthinkable happened. Breaking tonight on WTOP, Maryland Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin's son has died. Tommy Raskin was 25 years old, a second-year student at Harvard Law. A week later, a violent mob broke into the Capitol on January 6th, forcing Raskin to seek shelter in a congressional hearing room while his youngest daughter was barricaded in a separate office. The longtime constitutional law expert then led the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. Senators, my kids felt terrible that other kids, fathers and mothers, were pulled into this nightmare by a president of the United States. And then, on December 28, 2022, just two years after his son's death, he faced yet another tragedy. Another breaking story tonight. The Maryland Democratic congressman, who is a prominent member of the January 6th committee, makes a major health announcement. Jamie Raskin says he's been diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. He calls it serious, but a curable form of cancer. In the five months since his diagnosis, Raskin has stayed busy, acting as a ranking member of the House Oversight Committee, getting chemotherapy treatment, which as of last week was deemed successful with his cancer now in remission. And now he's mulling a possible Senate run in 2024. We talk about it all and hear from Raskin himself on how he's doing, where his priorities are, and why he's taking his time to think about a possible run for the U.S. Senate. Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, welcome to the DMV Download Podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Luke. On behalf of the entire WTOP newsroom, we just want to express how happy we are to hear that you know your cancer is in remission. I know that happened a few weeks back. Well, I appreciate that very much. I actually had my um, my final PET scan uh, just a couple of days ago, and mm. it indeed showed that I was cancer-free, knock on wood. So mm. um, I had known several weeks back because there was a midterm PET scan that it all looked good, but it's great to have that confirmation. I feel better every day and I am not experiencing the nausea anymore or the neuropathy and I'm back in the land of the living. Within our WTOP family, our Neil Augenstein, our beloved Neil Augenstein, you know, he got diagnosed with lung cancer just a few months back too. And so he's, you know, in kind of remission as well. And um, it's just a, it's a real thing to go through. And I'm sure it was a lot. I read an essay by Susan Sontag where she said that Everybody is born with two passports, and one is to the land of the living and well, and one is land to the is a passport to the land of the sick mm. and dying. And um, she said everybody wants to use just one passport in their life, but we're all going to use both of them. And I I feel like I've been in a foreign land for the last five months with lots and lots of people who are living, you know, further down the Maslow hierarchy of need and uh, are struggling to survive. And so those are my brothers and sisters, and uh, I won't forget them, and I won't forget the nurses and the doctors who got me through it and who are helping people every single day, and the pharmacists. So, you know, it's an intense reality, and, um, you know, there are just times when you don't think you're going to be able to make it through. And, you know, I mean, chemotherapy is strange because it's your best friend. It's saving your life, but it's also like your worst enemy because it's just creating this cascade of dreadful symptoms. Mm. Well, again, we just express how happy you are that it's in remission and wish you the best of luck going forward. 
Meanwhile, you've been very busy in Congress. You know, you really haven't stopped. A lot of people here locally have seen a lot of your words on D.C. You know, home rule in the past three months. Notably, Congress has really stepped into the legislator、uh, box, if you will, to you know block D.C.'s revised criminal code. And just you know, as recently as a few weeks ago, within this week, D.C.'s policing. Bill, you've been a staunch advocate for DC home rule. Do you see this as the beginning of this sort of continued action of Congress stepping into the legislative box of DC? Well, Newton's third law of motion says that every action creates an equal and opposite reaction, and our friends in the GOP are reacting to the last two terms of Congress, where for the first time in American history, one of the chambers, the House of Representatives. Voted to grant DC's petition for statehood. I mean, that's a huge、uh, and historic breakthrough for the struggle for DC voting rights. That the House of Representatives, and specifically every Democrat in the House of Representatives, with the the exception of one, I think, from Minnesota, voted to grant DC admission as a state to redraw the boundaries of the federal districts. To include just the White House, the Capitol, the federal buildings, and then to cede, you know, ninety-nine percent of the District of Columbia to the new state and to admit it as a new state.、Mm. And so、uh, I see all of this Republican backlash and absurd、uh, micromanagement of DC's affairs as an attempt to roll back the movement for statehood, which now is really. Just waiting to see whether there will be passage eventually in the House and the Senate simultaneously. But many statehood efforts in our history have taken decades to get done, and I know it's frustrating for the people of D.C. to wait all this time. But I mean, that's the history for Hawaii and Alaska and everybody else. I mean, 37 of the 50 states came in after the original union was formed. Of, Thirteen, and so people in D.C. should keep that historical perspective in mind. And most of the petitioning new states have faced all kinds of defamatory and、uh, slanderous kinds of statements, the kinds of things that are being said by by D.C. to undercut its progress. And you're a constitutional expert. We've seen that on display in the you know second impeachment trials, the January sixth commission, but also kind of here in this discussion of. DC home rule. So, for some people who are thinking about this in the constitutional lens, you know, how should they think about DC statehood? Article One, Section Eight, Clause Seventeen of the Constitution gives the Congress exclusive legislation over the seat of government. That plenary power is so comprehensive that it includes the power to define and modify the boundaries of the District of Columbia. In 1846. Congress redrew the boundaries to give to Virginia, Arlington, Alexandria,、right. Fairfax County, which were part of the original Ten Mile Square that had been drawn in to the federal district. That established the precedent for what Representative Norton proposes to do now with the DC State of Legislation. Basically, says Congress has control over this, so her legislation would redraw. The federal district around the federal mall areas, you know, the Capitol, the White House, the 
federal monuments and buildings and then cede this land to the to the new state. Now, some people have said, well, it should really go back to Maryland because Maryland had ceded all of the land that presently constitutes the District of Columbia, the land that's uh, north of the Potomac. But of course, that's a political question that's up to the people of D.C. originally. Where do they want to go? Do they want to rejoin Maryland or do they want to create their own state? And then it would be up to the Maryland legislature. So it's not that that would be an unconstitutional solution. It's just that nobody has pushed for that and that's not where it is. And right. It could conceivably happen if D.C. statehood doesn't happen, but I'm convinced that D.C. statehood will happen. Yeah. And, you know, the ironic and difficult reality for many D.C. residents is, and I was talking to D.C. Chairman Phil Mendelson about this, is it's in the hands of non-D.C. residents, right, their fate, because they still don't have that uh, full voting power. That, that's always the case for a statehood admission, and Article 4 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to admit new states, but it was contemplated by the founders that there would not be people who are governed long term in some kind of colonial subjection status, Mm. but rather everybody would enter the union on an equal footing with everybody else, meaning as a state with all the rights of self-government under the 10th Amendment um, and with the full rights of citizenship. So the people of D.C. now know what it feels like to be governed by other people's representatives. And when I helped to manage the D.C. statehood legislation on the House floor with Representative Norton, I started by thanking the people of D.C. who have a real, a valid political grievance, not a phony imaginary one, but a real one, and yet didn't storm the Capitol and try to overthrow Mm. the government. They came to the defense of Congress and the vice president on January 6th when we were under siege by people with a completely illusory grievance and yet nonetheless committed violence against uh, our police officers and attempted to overthrow our government. Mm. And we will discuss January 6th just in a little bit. But before we do, I want to travel up north into really the center of your district, District 8, where the Purple Line is under construction. Now, anyone who gets off 495 and drives south down Connecticut Avenue can see that work is being done on this long-anticipated Purple Line, which really is going to span, you know, east to west, um, a little south, and connect, you know, Bethesda all the way to New Carrollton. I know a lot of transit uh, users are looking forward to this. Do you expect this long-delayed project at some points to to come to fruition in 2026? And what are your thoughts about, you know, this long-awaited project? Well, I mean, it's been a, a prolonged and frustrating wait. And, you know, this is the part of the price to pay for you know, the dynamics of a public-private partnership like this. But also, um, I'm looking at the the map of the metro behind you in the logo for your show. And that kind of tells the whole story because when the metro was built, everything flowed from the suburbs into the city and then back out again. And you can see from that original map of the orange and red and blue and yellow and green lines that there's not much connective tissue traveling east to west. It was all, you know, towards the center and back out again. And the purple line rectifies that problem for us mm. in Prince George's in Montgomery County, 
by linking, you know, College Park and the University of Maryland all the way through Silver Spring and then over to Bethesda. And it creates that east-west corridor where we've not had satisfactory public transportation. So it's been a real dislocation for people in a lot of the neighborhoods. And it's unfortunate that it had to be done decades after the metro was first built. But that's a 2020 hindsight kind of situation. We're hoping that Governor Moore's administration will be able to expedite things and keep it on track. One day, it will be very important transportation connective tissue for us. We've been talking to U.S. Representative Jamie Raskin on his recovery from lymphoma cancer, his work on D.C. statehood, and the Purple Line. Coming up, we'll hear Raskin's thoughts on a rise in political violence in this country and how he's thinking about a potential Senate run in 2024. We talked about D.C., Maryland, obviously. Now let's go down south to Virginia, where just recently Congressman Jerry Connolly's office, district office, was uh, attacked by you know, a man with a metal bat. We're learning more about the kind of mental condition of this attacker. But it really comes at a time where there's increased threats to members of Congress. You've been involved in the investigations in the January 6th attack, which obviously relates here. Where is your head at regarding threats to members of Congress? It was a devastating thing, obviously, for Jerry Conley and his staff and the members who were directly assaulted, obviously. But it, it shook up my staff and the staffs of other people in the region and then across the country. You know, there's been a lot of violence. I mean, we saw the attack on Speaker Pelosi's home where Paul Pelosi was injured, like viciously injured by an attacker. And some of our colleagues tried to poo-poo the whole thing or trivialize it or lampoon it or insinuate that he was somehow uh, involved and knew the guy. I mean, just crazy stuff going on. And all of that in the context of um, January 6th, an assault on Congress and the Capitol where 150 of our officers ended up with dislocated shoulders, broken jaws, noses, fractured skulls, broken fingers, toes, strokes, heart attacks, you name it. And several officers ended up taking their lives and dying from other causes in the days immediately following the attack. And of course, there were other deaths that took place on that day as well. Um, So that was a, a savage moment in the life of the Republic. And generally, there's been this terrible coarsening of our civil discourse and this sarcastic indulgence and embrace of violence and, you know, putting up cartoons where members of Congress are assaulted or killed and using really violent force rhetoric. So it's always hard to follow directly from particular outbursts of violent rhetoric and then right connected episodes and so and i'm not trying to claim that for any particular individual case but generally the moral environment has deteriorated sharply with respect to that and the refusal to denounce and renounce the violence on january 6th 
I think has been a disaster for uh, the country. Mm. The fact that Donald Trump is out there right now saying that he will pardon people convicted of offenses on January 6th is shocking to me. The fact that some of my colleagues describe people who beat police officers over the head with steel pipes or Confederate battle flags as political prisoners is utterly amazing to me. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a political prisoner. Nelson Mandela was a political prisoner. People who rose up against authoritarian and totalitarian regimes are political prisoners. People who try to attack our government and overthrow an election are not political prisoners. Those are people who have been convicted of seditious conspiracy or they've been convicted of assaulting federal officers or destroying federal property or what have you, but that does not make them political prisoners. Their ideology is completely beside the point. They're being punished for their actions. And far from being mistreated in D.C. jail, they're probably being treated better there than prisoners are being treated around the country. And between the two D.C. facilities that they could be placed in, they're clearly in the superior one because they could be asking by petition to be transferred to the other facility every two weeks, and none of them asked uh, to be transferred. On the contrary, people in the other facility are trying to be in the one where the January 6th rioters are being held, and they have 24-7 access to medical attention. They have yeah. computer tablets they can use. They have three meals a day. Um, they have a big open area where they can spend most of the day and so on. So we, we did... Uh, we had members who went over. I couldn't go just because of my immunocompromised status several weeks ago. But we had members who went over. They are on the tour with Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Republicans. And we were able to debunk the claims that they're somehow political prisoners and being mistreated. And, you know, when you think about this uh, idea of safety uh in the capital itself and, you know, writ large across the country, do you feel safe? You know, do, do you personally, you're a member of Congress, you're, you know, visible, you've definitely been outspoken against, you know, Trump. Do you feel safe? Do other members feel safe? I'm just trying to get a kind of a sense here. Well, look, uh, you know, that there are other countries that are issuing travel advisories to their citizens about coming to America because of gun violence, which gives you a sense of what an outlier we are in terms of our lax gun laws, uh, which operate like Swiss cheese. The Brady background check law really works and has worked to stop a lot of criminals from getting weapons, except now there are these huge loopholes in it, which the criminals know how to find. You, they, they can still get guns online. They mm. can still get guns at gun shows, at private gun shows. They can make private deals for guns. So we have 400 million firearms in the country, which has just 300 million people and a huge flourishing underground market in firearms. And so that makes life dangerous for everybody. Mm. I, you know, I'm no more worried for me than I am for anybody else. And I'm more worried for kids who go to school um, because they've got to go to school under the truancy laws. But what are we doing really to protect them? by allowing citizens to get assault weapons. And how many massacres do we have to see at public schools, private schools, religious schools, college campuses like Virginia Tech? 
private churches, synagogues, mosques, Walmarts, like in Texas, private bars. How many do we have to see before we act? The vast majority of the American people thinks that there should be a universal violent criminal background check on all weapons. That would go a long way to close these loopholes we're talking about. But the majority of people also favor an assault weapon ban. We had an assault weapon ban for a decade, and it lowered assault weapon-related fatalities by more than a third in the country. So the red flag laws are working, Mm. um, and we need to have red flag laws in every state and federally, and we need the opportunity to get guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them, whether they're convicted felons or violent fugitives or people who've been deemed to be a threat to themselves or to other people. Right. You know, we've been talking about the state of our democracy, you know, gun violence within the country and here locally, the safety of, you know, members of Congress and elected leaders. You know, things kind of seem, you know, a little grim by, you know, what we've just been discussing and talking about. You know, are you hopeful for the future? And if you are, you know, where does that hopefulness come from? Well, I'm so hopeful for the future because the truth is that we have great consensus on all those questions you just identified, Luke in the country. I mean, more than 90% of the American people support a universal violent criminal background check. And so we're talking a majority of Democrats, Republicans, independents, gun owners, non-gun owners. We've got commanding majorities for assault weapon ban. And the problem is that our political system is uh, stuck. And the opponents of gun safety reform have a whole bag of uh, tricks that they use, the gerrymandering of our state legislative districts and our congressional districts, the manipulation of the electoral college, violent insurrection, if it uh, comes to that, right-wing judicial activism, blockading judicial nominees like Merrick Garland when he was nominated by President Obama, saying that his nomination came too close to the next presidential election, which was 11 months away, Mm. but then railroading the nomination through of Amy Coney Barrett less than two months before the next election. I mean, all these tricks have added up to an assault on democracy, but the majority, I think, really believes in common sense gun safety solutions. It believes in voting rights for the people. It believes in treating the LGBTQ population with fairness and decency and equality. You know, the majority of American people don't want to try to rewrite history and erase people's memory Mm. of the violation of civil rights and the discussion of slavery as a critical aspect of American history. I mean, all of those things represent a minority agenda Mm. in uh, America, and the vast majority of people stand on the side of reason and what Tom Bain called common sense. So that gives me great hope when I think about the people who've struggled for democracy in our history. And I think about the young people today who've really gotten beyond the racism, the sexism, the anti-Semitism, the homophobia. And unfortunately, they're a little bit beyond grammar, too. But basically, they're a very wonderful generation, the young people I just met with my interns now. And uh, they have a lot to contribute. So I think 
that America is just going to be getting better and better. But it is a race between the will of the majority and a bag of dirty tricks. Mm. So you're hopeful about the future. Let's talk about, you know, your future. Senator Ben Cardin announced a few weeks ago that, you know, he's not going to seek reelection for the Senate. Have you come down yet, you know, on whether you would take a bid for that Senate seat or are you comfortable where you are kind of in the House of Representatives? Well, I I haven't decided yet, Luke, and I'm thinking it through. I appreciate everybody's patience because I know people (laughs) want to know and everybody (laughs) loves a campaign. Um, But, you know, I spent the last five months in chemotherapy. And um, as I was saying before, um, it was all I could do just to stay on top of my work uh, on the oversight committee where I'm the ranking Democrat, you know, get to all of my votes and take care of my health. And I couldn't think about anything else. And then I think just a day or two after I rang the bell and completed chemotherapy, Senator Cardin made his announcement that he wasn't going to be running for re-election. And suddenly I was bombarded with all these calls and emails. <laughs> and so uh, I've asked everybody's patience just so I can think it through and talk it over with my my family and figure out what I'm doing. I mean, you know, far more important than my own political ambitions is the test we're going to face in 2024, because I think we're still in the middle of the fight to defend democracy and freedom against Trump and his forces of authoritarianism and insurrection and corruption. And I wish I could say that the struggle that I've been involved in with the impeachment trial and the January 6th committee and the defense of democracy and the oversight committee was over, but it's not over by a long shot. I mean, we're still in the thick of this thing. And so I'm trying to figure out where my energies and experience are best channeled at this point going forward. And that really is my primary interest in this thing. I mean, I've been through so many hard times now. Mm. You know, we lost our son, Tommy, on the last day of the year in 2020. And that's still a staggering heartbreak for us. Um, And anyway, you know, the personal political ambition side of it is not so important to me anymore. I mean, I'm really just trying to think about the country and the democracy and the family and the the people and the constituents I love, you know. Mm. Lots to think about. A lot to think about, uh, Congressman, for sure. Thank you so much for giving us the time and you know, sharing your thoughts on the myriad of topics that this region faces, our country faces, and sharing a little bit of your personal story. As you said, you've gone through some really real challenges in the past few years. Well, I appreciate it, Book. It was good, great being on the show, and um, thank you for having me. And before we go, Raskin did lay out a bit of a timeline on his potential announcement for a Senate run. He says he'll make a call sometime in June. And that'll do it for us today here on the DMV Download Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, let us know how we're doing. Rate the show on your favorite podcast platform with some stars or a comment. This show is a product of WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland, and 107.7 FM in Virginia. You can also listen online at WTOP.com and on the WTOP News app. Have a great week. We'll talk Wednesday. Wednesday.